All right, everybody, come on in, and we will get started with the Discovering God Hour. It's what we call this second hour on Sunday mornings. And the series that we're going to continue today that we've been going through for several weeks is Identity Crisis. Who does God say that I really am? You see that on the screen, and you should see that on the front cover of hopefully notes you have in front of you. But if you don't, have a set of notes. We have plenty today. We made lots of copies. Last week we didn't, but we do today. So if you need them, Daniel has some back here, and then Carl had some as well. There he is. So anybody on this side need any notes? Carl can get you. Here's one up here. And anybody on this side, uh, Daniel can... Great. You guys have done a great job. Well, we are going to pick up on page 25 where I left off, but I want to go back to 24 for the sake of any who were not here last week. So turn to page 24. We'll go over what I talked about there quickly, and then we'll pick up where we left off on page 25 in your, in your notes. You see at the top of page 24, it, the title is Transform Arguments Redemptively, and it starts with a couple, Sue and Ken, who are struggling. And I said last week that you are either currently struggling, uh, well, you are currently struggling, I said last week. We all are with something or some things. But the difference between our struggles is those who know how to handle them biblically and those who, who don't. Or perhaps you know, but you just refuse to do it that way. And this is the sanctification process. This is the Christian life. The Christian life is a struggle. The Christian life is a struggle with some translations call the, the flesh, the sin nature. Uh, when you read flesh in your New International Version, make sure you put it in context because it's not always referring to the body. A lot of times it's referring to the sin nature. And so the flesh or the, or the, the sin nature. And you still have that, and I still have that, even though we are Christians, even though we've been born again, even though the Spirit of God is at work in us, we still have this battle warring within us. We're in good company when we say that because the Apostle Paul had the same, end of Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. And then he just kind of descended into some more despair. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But he didn't stay there, thankfully. And you shouldn't stay there either. You should go to where he did at the end of Romans 7. But thanks be to God, verse 25, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, and now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have that going on as Christians. We've got the new nature, we've got, this, and we, we've got sin warring against it, and we have that battle, all of us, but that's the sanctification process. And so it is a struggle to become more like Christ on a daily basis for all of us. When we say at the top of page 24, Sue and Ken are struggling, that's not saying much because that's really true for everybody. The question is, how do you handle the, the struggle? And then it goes on to talk about their communication. They get into a squabble at a, an event. They have other people there. He says something unkind to her. She responds sort of in kind, not as bad as him. It's clear that she's not as bad as him uh, in, in terms of what's obvious, as I'll talk about in a bit. But nevertheless, both of them have their, have their issues. And I said last week that when you counsel couples, the number one presenting problem that they bring to counselors is communication. We, we just need to learn how to, to communicate. And I pointed out that that presenting problem is very often not the real problem. 
But the real problem goes much deeper than teaching skills on how to communicate. And in fact, if we don't get to the root problem and we simply learn these surface skills on how to better communicate without a heart change, then we may just get better at driving the conversation the way we want. So, I said last week, skills without heart change can be dangerous. Skills without character are dangerous in people, politicians, leaders. If you have people who have skills, they know how to do things, but they are not internally people of character, you need to, you need to look out. So, you see in the middle of page 24, examining Sue's response. Sue responded to this unkind thing he said, and I said, I made some comments about Sue. I said, you know, that what you're going to read about this examination of how she responded is hard. And it's hard especially for the person who is the offended rather than the offender. This guy, Ken, started this in this particular instance. He makes this snide comment about her cooking in front of people. And then she responds to it. And so, focusing on how she should have responded is really hard if you're the person that's offended. It's really hard to live with someone who is a regular offender, whose whose sins interpersonally are very obvious and they affect you in obvious ways. When you're right in, 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 in what you're trying to do, at least externally, And I mentioned a book last week by Leslie Vernick, V-E-R-N-I-C-K, How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. But This doesn't just apply to spouses, but any interpersonal relationship. So what we're going to see here in the pages that follow is hard because it's being directed at Sue rather than Ken. Now I'm going to talk about in a little bit why it's really being honed in on, on her. But I'll just say for now that for anybody who comes to me and talks about their struggle with their spouse or somebody else, I understand the struggle. I've, you know, I live in the same world. I've got the same kind of struggle internally that, that you have. And so I understand it. It's just we can't condone it. If we, if we want to live biblically, if we want to do what Jesus says, then we both together need to look at what he, what he says. And if we find our identity in being approved and being accepted by a circle of people or a particular person, then whenever we don't have that, if we have that need for approval, then we're going to be trapped. I mentioned my dear mom last week and how she was trapped in trying to find that approval in being a great mom to her children. You know, we were blessed by that, but she was, she was not. And she uh, was not able to live with the joy of the Lord that she otherwise could have and should have if she had, if she had understood some of this. Top of page 25, then, I say, or the top of page 25 says, when you put your identity in something apart from Christ, you position yourself to respond in self-reliant, self-righteous ways to protect and defend your purpose and plans. With this functional identity, you know, there's your presenting identity. If I were to say to you, especially at church, you know, I'd say, hey, tell me who you are. And you'd say, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I'm born again. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm, go- I'm going to heaven. All these things that are true if you belong to Jesus. But that may not, none of those may be your functional identity. Your functional identity is how you function. Out of what identity do you actually live? 
It's one thing to say I'm a child of God. It's one thing to say I'm an ambassador for Christ. It's one thing to say I've been adopted into his family and I'm going to live with him forever and all of these great things. But is that your functional identity? Do I live out of that? So with this self-reliant, self-righteous functional identity, Sue was ready. She was primed to give a natural response before her husband Ken even spoke his cruel, his cruel words. We saw this chart on page 25. Sorry for the small font. But we got this uh, chart. And I said at the end of our time together last week that the right side, all of the bad fruit that comes out of this natural thinking that's rooted in whatever we use to gain significance. All of the right side of that's all the ill fruit that comes out of it, but that's all rooted in the left side. It all starts on the left side. And so we want to examine a bit then the left side today, middle of page 25. Sue was provoked. So why are we focusing on Sue? She was the one provoked. I mean, Ken's the guy who gets in front of a bunch of people says, you are a lousy cook. He used other words, but that was what he said. You're a lousy cook. Teach my wife to cook. She's a lousy cook. So why aren't we focusing on him? We're focusing on Sue. Here's why. The small, the so-called small stuff is where most Christians live. The so-called small stuff is where most genuine Christians live. Now, here's what I mean by that. Years ago, I heard an illustration of, read an illustration of the Christian life that was likened the Christian life to a garden uh, or to a, a piece of property, land, that has to be cultivated. And when you first come to Christ, you are this piece of ground, this piece of dirt. And on it, it's got a bunch of rocks and boulders and hard ground and just a lot of stuff that's obvious that needs to go. So you come to Christ, and you're excited about your new life in Christ. You get baptized like we're going to do tonight. You start hanging around with Christian people. You start going to Bible studies. You show up at church. You got all that going on, and you, you start to realize, hey, there are things, man. Wait, the way I talk, the, maybe the way I dress, maybe the places I go to. What, there's just some obvious things that have been going on in my life that, that these people don't do. And, you know, I think they're right. I need to change some of that. And I start to change some of these obvious or big things. And within the first year, there's a lot of that kind of those big rocks get tossed out of the way. And you start to try to grow in a Christian life. And so the ground of your life is being that hard ground is being plowed up. It's being made softer. But here's the, here's the, here's the thing about it. The more you plow... The more you hoe, the more rocks you turn up. They're smaller. But there's more of them. The obvious stuff, you chuck, you start to get rid of. But then there's the stuff under the surface. And that start out, starts now to surface. Things going on in your heart that you didn't, know were, you didn't know were there. The Holy Spirit starts putting a spotlight on things that you didn't care about before. Big stuff gets chucked out first year or so. Now I got more of these things. And I say most Christians live their life in the small stuff, the smaller rocks. You've, moved, you've removed all the, the big obvious stuff. That's why you're a church person. 
See, but you don't want to be just a church person. You want to be a growing believer in the Lord Jesus. And so you don't want to have one year of growth over 20 years, which is what so many church people have. One year of growth, the equivalent of one year of growth spread out over 20 years or 30 years. Because they got rid of the big stuff and then they became a, a church person. I mean, I look, look at me, I'm a church person. I know exactly how to talk. I know exactly how to act. Many of you have learned how to do that, and yet you and I have stuff going in, in our, on in our hearts that is not so obvious. It's the so-called small stuff. Small stuff, that's what I mean by the small stuff. Harder to see. Harder to get a hold of. The small stuff, then, is where most church people, most Christians live. At the end of our time last week, I called the small stuff the termites. Those of you that were here, termites eating at the foundation. You know, the thing about termites is a lot of times you don't know they're there until all of a sudden the house is starting to go. And it's starting to fall. Now we got something obvious going on, but we've had a lot of non-obvious things going on for for years, these smaller things, more imperceptible things, the small stuff. And if you forget, your, if you don't look for, plow up, think about, seek to repent of and correct your small stuff, then you'll feel superior to the people with the big stuff. You've got all this stuff going on in your heart, but you don't know it because you're not looking for it. Part of the reason you're not looking for it is because you were told at church, you weren't taught it, you were just caught it, that what you do is get rid of the big stuff, start to dress and talk and act like we do, and we'll be good to go until Jesus comes back. And so you started to do that. And so you're not working on any of that small stuff anymore. And now you look at the people who have the obvious stuff and you go, ah, those are the bad people. We're the church people, you're the bad people. This is part of the reason that we church folk get the reputation we do. As judgmental, because we're looking at that stuff and we're not looking here. So if we forget the small stuff, we're going to feel superior to those who have, what I mean by the big stuff is just obvious stuff. And here's the thing, God sweats the small stuff. God actually cares about what's going on in your heart. God cares about those smaller rocks, not just the big boulders that you got out in the first year. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 3. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Let me just stop. <laughs> My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Here's Paul saying, you know, I've tried to look at what's going on. My conscience is clear, but Paul says, you know, I know what I am. He's the guy who wrote Romans 7, remember? The end of Romans 7. He knows what he is. He knows what goes on in his heart. 
So my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Who knows what all's lurking in my heart? This is Paul. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from, from God. So, at the judgment seat of Christ, which we will all stand before, not to determine if we go to heaven or hell, but rather for an evaluation of what we did with the gifts that God gave us. First, the gift of salvation, and then the gifts of the Spirit that He gave to us and how we represented Him. And so we will all, we will all do that. And God will expose the motives, that, the small stuff, the less obvious stuff. But here's the best thing for all of us to do prior to that time, is to analyze our hearts as best we can before the Lord, to not be satisfied with one year of growth over a 20, 30, 40-year period. So David, King David, in Psalm 51, he prays this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So what you and I ought to be doing regularly, rather than being obsessed with what somebody else is doing wrong, we ought to be obsessed with the Lord analyzing us. Turning up the things that are smaller because they are less obvious. And if, and if that happens, if you're doing that on a regular basis, then you've got the jerk in your life. Everybody's got the jerk in their life. At least one. And that person may be in your family. You may be married to that person. That person may be your boss. Extended family, your neighbor, whatever. Everybody's got them, okay? There's the jerk or jerks in your life. And they provoke you, but now you respond differently. Ken's the jerk in Sue's life. I mean, who gets in front of a bunch of people and says, my wife's a lousy cook, teach her how to cook? And who among us wouldn't sympathize with Sue for shooting back? But if Sue wants to grow and she wants to get rid of what causes her to do that kind of thing, it's going to require not being satisfied with just getting rid of the big stuff so that she can compare herself to the jerks of the world. You know, this is the church person comparing themselves to everybody else. And I'm not as bad as Ken is, Sue can say. And so I'm good to go because I've got him to focus on. I've got him as my foil. I've got him to obsess about. And I can always show people how bad he is. And when I'm compared to him, I'm golden. Because he's got all the obvious stuff. But if she is praying like David did in Psalm 51, creating me this pure heart, See if there be any wicked way in me. Now she will not react to the provocation of the jerk in her life in her sin nature. Now she won't react that way. If she's not cultivating her own heart, then when the jerk in your life does their jerky stuff, you will respond. And everybody will sympathize and everybody will say, you're right. 
And if you're talking to your girlfriends about it, if you're talking to the, the boys about it, you're at the water cooler talking to people, they'll say, yeah, you're right, man, he's a real man. She is a piece of work. Oh, holy cow, how do you live with... And yeah, I don't blame you, and you're justified in all of this, and that's the way, that's the way the life goes. Me comparing myself to somebody else. See, there's a boatload that goes on in your heart and in my heart before we ever react sinfully to the provocation of somebody else. There's a boatload that is going on in our hearts before we ever react sinfully to the provocation of somebody else. So if you're sitting there thinking about your jerk, number one, the people who provoke you in your life, and then how you respond to that, and you've had lots of people around you who are building you up in your righteousness because you're responding the right, you know, who could, who could blame you? I'd do the same thing. He's the problem. If he didn't do that, you wouldn't do what you do. If he'd get it together, then you wouldn't. If you're, if you're thinking about all of that, here's what you need to be thinking about. Every time you react in a sinful way, even if it's not as obvious and big, every time you react in a sinful way, there's been a boatload of stuff going on in your heart that brought you to that point. You see, what we tend to do is focus on the incident. And the incident was given on page 24. The incident was they're at a, play, they're at a party, a gathering, in front of a bunch of people. He says, you're a lousy cook. Somebody help my wife be a better cook. She reacts the way she does. You focus just in on that incident, she's the righteous one. But if you focus on all that goes on in her heart before that, that prepared her, that primed her to react the way she did. Whenever you react wrongly, your heart has been prepared wrongly. Whenever we react wrongly, our hearts have been prepared wrongly. So instead of just focusing on the incident and saying, well, look at the big thing he did, look at the obvious thing he did, any person you ask you know, would side with me. They know I'm right about this. Who would say that in front of people? It's all true. But instead of doing that, saying, say to yourself, what, what am I failing to do in cultivating my heart up to that point that causes me to react the way I do? I can't control the jerks in my life. I can't control the way I react to them. So whenever you react wrongly, Whenever you react sinfully, your heart has been sinfully prepared to do that. No matter how big, small, no matter how obvious or not obvious. We're going to move on here in a second, but every person here, including me, needs to stop overlooking our stuff. You see, because if you only think of the obvious stuff, if you only think of the big stuff, then you overlook your stuff. Because that's the problem. If we can get that straightened out. So focus less on the incident and focus more on the preparation. Think of it this way. If you've ever been involved in sports, or if you haven't been, you can still relate to this. Or you're involved in music or anything that requires practice. I used to tell myself when I was jogging, yep, 
I know. I know. Can you believe it? Because when I was in high school, cross-country, three-mile meets. So if you're going to do a three-mile meet, my view was you need to be able to, in practice, go about six or seven miles. And if I can go six or seven miles in practice, three miles in a game is nothing in the meet. And so that's what you do. And when you're out there and you're all by your lonesome and you're doing that, there are times where you're just saying to yourself, just get the, your foot out, just put the next step out in front of the next, next one, keep going, keep moving, keep moving. And I would say this to myself over and over again, the meat is one in practice. The game is not one on game day. The game's one in practice, no matter what the game is, no matter what, if you're doing your music recital, <laughs> it's not on the day of the recital. It's in all the practice that went into that. And so your spiritual battle is not won when the incident occurs. It's won or lost in the preparation you make for it. In the way that you are looking for what's going on in your heart, what's preparing your heart the way that it is. So, page 25. We'll look at the notes here for a second. But what I, all that stuff I just said, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? That could keep you busy till you die. That could keep you busy until Jesus comes back. That could shake you out of, and I say you, I mean me too. That could shake us out of our lethargy that says, hey, I'm a church person. To cause us to say, man, I got miles to go. Lord, show me and help me to deal with it piece by piece, termite by termite, one at a time. Now that I've finished this project that I've been working on for about the last four months, this past week, um, at some point, I hope in the next year to give attention to something Dr. Combs has been after me to do and put together a class, just a class on, for lack of a better term, spiritual formation that is just all of this kind of stuff for everybody who comes into our church as part of our discipling process. We have a pretty cool discipling process. In fact, my, my project was on that, and I was laying all of that out. But, you know, at the side of heaven, none of it's perfect, and there are holes that you would like to fill, and one of those would be something like this in a semester for people to get a grasp on dealing with the termites, dealing with the small stuff going on in their lives. So, coming to a semester near you in the, uh, in the future, all right? Middle of page 25, you see the chart there. I said everything on the left is what gives rise to everything on the right. You have the incident on the chart, and then you have the self-sufficient posture. And the self-sufficient posture is about the four things that come out of that, spiritual pride, boasting in self, serving the self, a horizontal focus. So page 25, spiritual pride. You can forget your, if you have this spiritual pride because you've got this, you got this self-sufficient posture, then you can forget your total dependence on God for everything and trust in your own intuition to get you through. In this case, Sue wanted to be in control, and the desire for love from her husband, which is a good thing, elevated to a point where his actions controlled her. That's the fear of man, setting her up to be a sinning victim. 
When attacked, she responded by becoming hurt and angry. She was spiritually proud, and the Holy Spirit was not leading her. She was not modeling grace. She was operating out of the flesh and all of its associated desires, and as a result, it produced the fruits of the flesh. Now, unless you had a whole preamble like I just gave you, you wouldn't think about any of that. You would just say, yeah, you're right to shoot back at him. He's got no right to say that. What kind of jerk is he? Spiritual pride. Boasting in self, when you take the self-sufficient posture, you must continually deal with indwelling guilt and shame by puffing yourself up. You desperately want people to see that you're good. You want them to understand your motives, no matter how poor your actions become. Your eyes become fixed on your story. If things are not going according to your script, you become downcast and fearful. Consequently, because you have not humbled yourself under a sovereign God, you position yourself actually against God in that sense, according to James 4.6. So, he says you're a lousy cook. She can't have people thinking I'm a lousy cook. I mean, what if people think I'm a lousy cook? What if people leave Community Bible Church because they don't like the pastor? And they go tell other people what an idiot the pastor is. You know, people do this. I mean, not a lot, thankfully, but but they do. It's happened. And so, you know, I'm not a cook. I used to babysit our daughters every now and then. Kim would be gone, and so I'm, I've got the daughters. They were little. And they get hungry, and then I have to figure out, well, what do you do when kids get hungry? Because I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to cook anything. And at one point, Lainey said to me, she's, I don't know, about six, she said, Daddy, what can you do? Mama did everything of value. Daddy, what can you do? So, you know, I tried, I could toast bread. I would toast bread. I would make peanut butter and jelly for them, and I would get them chocolate milk. And I do make, I do make a good Nestle's quick. So, so that's what, that's what I would, that's what I would do. And I'm not a cook, so I'm not worried about anybody saying I'm not, but I am a pastor, and, it does, and I have given my life to that, and it does bother me if somebody says, hey, he's a jerk, that church is, that does bother me. And so that's an instance where I'm in Sue's position now, and I can respond, and, and have responded, in precisely the kind of way that Sue did. Oh, really? <laughs> Pack a lunch, bring, bring it. Responding in kind. Boasting in self, because you, you've got to have people think of you the way you want to be thought of. Serving the self, bottom of page 25, when operating from a self-sufficient perspective, you protect yourself at all costs, whereby you naturally take the defensive posture. You justify actions, you argue your case, and you seek to gain control of the direction of the conversation or situation. Manipulating techniques such as anger, can come into play. You've got a horizontal rather than a vertical focus. Horizontal. This way, person to person rather than you to God. A natural consequence of self-sufficiency is that God becomes distant and your focus shifts to other people. Your prayer life becomes lifeless and anemic and God seems distant. Due to her, notice it again, functional identity. Sue would never see any of this stuff about herself. Because, but this is actually her functional identity. 
She took a self-protecting posture. She defended her actions and shared her insight on the actual problem, which is her jerk husband. For Sue to help Ken move towards a humble, other-centered position, she needs to change her method. She must fight redemptively. Redemptive thinking requires an in-Christ identity. That, those two words, in Christ, could be in quotes because they're quoting the New Testament. It uses that phrase, in Christ, a number of times of those who belong to Him. An in-Christ identity requires maintaining a singular focus on Christ. It requires a firm grasp on the theology of sin, knowledge, and appropriation of gospel application and the ability to trust in God's sovereign hand. I mean, you see that, trust in God's sovereign hand. So people are going to say what they're going to say. The jerks are going to do what jerks do. Do you trust God? Pastor, do you trust God? Or do you have to take matters into your own hands? And that's true for every one of us. This different path is shown in the graphic in the middle of page 26. And you see you've got the incident, but now it's not natural thinking with your identity in whatever it is that gains you approval. Now it's gospel thinking and your identity is in Christ. And you have the incident on the left, but notice the box, if you can read the small font, instead of now the self-dependent self-sufficient posture, this is now a redemptive posture, a redemptive position. Okay, it's up there and we, you still can't read it. We want to give you two, raise, two ways that you can't read it. Thank, no, really, thanks for, for putting it up, guys. But it's a, you know, it's a redemptive posture now instead of a self-sufficient posture that now gives results in different kinds of fruit, radically different kinds of fruit. So instead of all the pride and the self-boasting and all of that, notice what it says. You can hopefully see those four boxes, rectangular boxes, and they're listed at the bottom, starting at the bottom of page 26. Poor in spirit, you boast in Christ, the killing of self. So poor in spirit, since she recognizes her spiritual bankruptcy, She's in position now to move forward. Mourning over her sin will lead to meekness, a desire for relational restoration as a peacemaker, and a thirst for righteousness. She'll see the goodness of God's righteousness and desire to manifest His will on earth and in her life, precipitating, precipitating in acts of mercy as well as striving for personal holiness. Here's another way to put all that. When you stop, when you compare yourself to Christ, you'll stop comparing yourself to other people. Perhaps if you take nothing away from today's session, take that. When I compare myself to Christ, I stop comparing myself to others. And you see, all of this, this, self, this pride, this boasting and all that is all based on comparing myself to the jerks in my life. They're worse They've got the big stuff. They've got the obvious stuff. I'm comparing myself to that. As long as I compare myself to that, I've now got the self-sufficient posture. I'm good, you're not. You got the problem. So I'm focused on that person horizontally rather than comparing myself to Christ vertically. When you compare yourself to Christ, you stop comparing yourself to others, including your spouse. 
And when you do that, now you can make great strides in your Christian life. Now you're open to looking at the so-called small stuff that God sweats. You're poor in spirit. You boast in Christ, bottom of page 26. With her new purpose now and her correct position, she will take a humble posture with her focus on God's story. Her soul will find rest receiving, through receiving God's grace. And this involves what's on the top of page 27, the killing of self. With the flesh out of the way, again, the sin nature out of the way, she is positioned correctly for the pivotal point in this process. A willingness to take on his sin until it can be dealt with at the cross in God's timing. Wow. Read that again. You have a willingness to take on the person's sin until it can be dealt with at the cross in God's timing. I'll take it on rather than have to lash out. I'll take it on, I'll absorb it rather than having to get my way, rather than having to be justified in the eyes of other people. I can take it on because my identity, my real identity is in Jesus. It's not in the jerk. So if my real identity is not in that, now it doesn't control me. Now I don't have to have that. Now I can take it on and I can pray, Lord, change this person in my life. But I can't control that. And unless and until God does that and it's taken on at the cross, then we've all got people in our lives that are bringing things for us to take on. With her identity, second paragraph, they're firmly rooted in Christ. She's now free to respond from a position of self-sacrifice, of love, forgiveness, enabling her to react graciously, mercifully, and without taking offense. She could have simply said instead, well, if I had a husband who would do some stuff, then maybe I could be a decent cook. She could have said, yeah, that meal was pretty bad. <laughs> and allowed the evening to cont continue. And small group gospel relationships to form. As she waits on the Lord's leading, she can decide if this event needs a discussion at a later date or she will choose to let her love cover his sin. That is all very convicting, isn't it? But I am absolutely convinced that it is where I need, the way I need to live. I'm absolutely convinced that the Bible teaches it's the way you need to live. And as a result of that, I'm absolutely convinced that being a church person ain't good enough. That there's a whole lot of stuff, a whole boatload of stuff that needs to be dredged up, that needs to be seen and dealt with in our hearts. The better path. Unequivocally, this is the harder, but the higher road. It's the dying to yourself road. Taking a natural way, defending her position, expecting him to care about her feelings will only result in further relational deterioration, animosity, and dysfunctional communication. Sounds like a lot of marriages, a lot of relationships. Taking the humble road is the best way to travel and is the path that most accurately reflects the life of Christ and which demonstrates an unrelenting and unfaltering trust in the ability of the Holy Spirit to penetrate, to soften, and to transform the hearts of those who sin against you. 
Seeking contentment in your heavenly Father as Christ did takes the stress, the strain, and the expectations off of imperfect, bound-to-fail human relationships, redirects them to the only one who can fulfill them. That is the Lord Jesus. For too many Christians, this approach seems upside down, but this is the nature of the gospel. It gives you opportunities to help spread His kingdom on earth, but it requires you to do the same. There are times when you must be quiet, committed to God, and keep on serving the immature and self-centered sinners in your life, the people I call jerks. With the Lord's help, you will love your spouse well, and as God gives growth, you will move towards enjoying the benefits of a loving spouse with a well-cared-for soul. To restore their marriage, Ken and Sue must look to enjoy their marriage relationships in the context of a child of God first and foremost. Their worship structures are corrected and positions them to take redemptive postures when interacting with one another. Now, what if you had, uh, what if you had churches that were full of people who were pursuing that? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? By God's grace, that's what we want to be. We want to have, this is, the church has been called a family of families. That's what it is. God calls the church a family. We want our church family to deal with stuff that way, as a whole. And the family of individual families, each of those individual families has to do that. Now, if you've got the individual families doing that at home, You've got spouses doing that, or at least one spouse doing that. You've got kids seeing at least one spouse do that. You've got all these families doing that, and we're in this family of families. What a transformative thing that is. Some of you have lived long enough like I have to see disputes in churches. And by the way, I'm not getting ready to tell you of some dispute. Don't know of any. I'm usually the last to know, though, so... Everything's good. But disputes in churches, churches splitting. What's going on there? I'll tell you a big part of what's going on there is this thing that's supposed to be a family of families, those families are not doing this. So when they come together as the family, they're handling their stuff at church the same way they're handling it at home, which is a wreck. You don't have deference, and you don't have people willing to to absorb it and take it and place themselves under, submit to one another, the Bible says. That means place yourself under the interests of other people. You don't have people doing that because they're not doing it at home. But you've got people doing that in their individual lives and in their families. Now you have got a family of families. So by God's grace, that's what we want for you individually, what we want for me individually, for our homes, and for our church as well. Page 28, we'll focus starting next week then on bringing hope to a struggling marriage or relationship. So it's not just marriage. Let's pray and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for the great privilege of being among your people to encourage and be encouraged. We thank you for allowing us in your presence in a special way as God's people gather. Thank you for the privilege of being able to remember especially and focus upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on our behalf, who modeled precisely what you tell us to be and do in your word. This killing of self, you were willing to absorb the sin of humanity upon yourself. 
And you call us to kill self. You call us to be willing to absorb the sin of others that takes place in our lives. But Lord, we can only do that if we see ourselves for who we are, if we're not trying to find our identity someplace else in the approval of that person who is the jerk in our lives. If we have to have that, if that's in fact our functional identity, then we will respond accordingly. And so Lord, help each brother and sister here now to analyze the way that they are reacting to the provocations in their lives, at work, at home, at school, the neighborhood, the kids, whatever it is. And help us to remember that whenever we react sinfully, it's because our hearts have been prepared sinfully. And to see that for the serious issue that it is and create in us then the desire to see if there is in fact any wicked way in us so that it can be removed, so that we can advance in becoming more like the Lord Jesus. Help us to begin doing that this week. Grant us safety. Bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we have to do some shifting around the auditorium. Okay. So we have the baptism celebration this evening, and that means we set up round tables in here, about 20 or or so of those. So we need to move the chairs around. Men, if you can stick around for just a few minutes to help us with that. Ladies, if you'll vacate the room. And any of you guys that can do that, it really literally would just take a few minutes. And Pastor Larry, are you going to explain how it goes? Okay, thanks.